I've got Chris Dowsett here. Hi, Chris. Hey, Tyler. How's it going? Good. You're on episode one of the podcast and you're back. I love it. I love this podcast. You're doing, you're doing great work. Keep it up. Oh, thank you very much. And I want this is meant to, to throw everybody off if they thought they knew what the podcast was. I want to keep moving it forward and not let it all be about camera gear or whatever uh, you, you thought you were listening to. Because today we're going to talk about a director we enjoy and uh, some of his films. And we're having some warm-up conversation, which is always a bad idea because then there's always something that people miss. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to, just to bring people in a little bit about like the, the thoughts we were having just before we started recording about why it is you pursue conversations about film or like reading other people's reviews. Because there can be this, this feeling of, the, I have this feeling when I watch sports fans, like if they're at a hockey game or a football game or whatever, and they're yelling at the coach or the players, like, why the hell didn't you do this thing? Like, it's so goddamn obvious. I know better than you. And to me, I'm like, well, why don't, why don't you go do it? And this is because I don't, I don't care about sports, so I don't get interested in them. In film, it can kind of be a similar thing. When you watch a movie and you see critics dissecting it and saying, I would have done it this way. And they spent too much time on this plot element and they miscast this one role and it can kind of get frustrating sometimes. I don't know. How, how do you feel? Do you re- read reviews? Do you? I, uh... I specifically think like I'm kind of torn on my film literacy as it's growing. For context, I suppose I myself would love to become the director that is qualified and oh, wait, and can, uh, can kind we of go back a second to because... direct a crew because like you know I started in photography and I want to direct so. But well, that's why I want to go back because I, I, I'm like, oh, Chris was on the show before, but let's also make sure people know what your interests are and kind of what you do a little bit. Like, yeah, like uh, just for the context of of how any of my opinions stick to who I am, I started in photography, did some commercial photography, music videos. Uh, I kind of have competencies all over the place in motion graphics and visual effects, and I had a few things steer me around my life over the past decade that have taught me more about what art is about instead of how to make art. So I've been concerned more about, you know, what stories are about, what films are about, and the ideas that that people put out there, as well as the assembly of movies, because movies are a functionally, insanely complicated thing to make. So my goal over the course of my life, and I don't know if it'll be when I'm 50, I'm 35 now, and I don't know if it's when I'm 50 or 45 or 60, but I would like to become a director and have any of of how I direct emulate some of the current day's best directors. And today, the director that we're going to talk about is Christopher Nolan. Now, my kind of relationship with this right now, and I'm kind of torn is you become a bit of an armchair quarterback currently because there is an insane amount of information out there, like great information in video essays specifically, that break down people's careers. They break down movies. I even know myself, I have taken a, a bunch of my favorite films and I have cut up the finished film into individual clips and also assembled those clips into scenes just to see what I can learn from, from movies if I break them apart. And it always tells you something, but that something that it tells you is not the actual thing. So it's very much like you're watching, you know, a hockey game or a football game from the, from the stands 
when you think you're seeing the whole game, you think you're seeing the whole thing, but really what makes the players the players is a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we can almost become delusional in a way as creators if we constantly break apart or, you know, unpack what these people's careers are without understanding what makes a career or even what makes a film set, a good film set, a bad film set, a good movie, a bad movie, good casting, bad casting, all these different things. And it's not really in video essays or something like that, right? So it's a complicated kind of thing to have an opinion on. I think there can be something to video essays that, and some people may not watch them, but I mean, I, ones that I like are movies with Mikey. Uh, as one, the ones that we were watching is the director series by Cameron Bale, B-E-Y-L. I don't know how to pronounce his name. He has a, uh, an entire site called the Director Series that's just phenomenal. Yeah, so that, that was a lot details, of our research. Yeah. Chris sent me all those links to the Christopher Nolan series before this. And so he breaks up the whole filmography. So it will it will be probably often referenced and you guys should watch that after this. They're, they're very good. There's five parts. Yeah, so it's very good. But, but watching a, a lot of, especially movies with Mike is a good one for anybody that hasn't seen it, maybe pause and go watch one because they're, they're pretty short, but he's really good at having a, like a single insight that's really compelling. So I was watching the one about the dark Knight, and his big kind of theory in it is the dark Knight, and the hero is actually the Joker. And he has a pretty compelling story of why you should be drawn into the Joker story as the true hero, like the actual good guy of the film. And it's total, it's, it's interesting, but it's total junk food too. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think I would take any lessons from it and then apply that to filmmaking. It's just like, Oh, like that was fun to have my head, tipped on its side for five minutes and see this film from a new perspective. Mm -hmm. But it, at the same time, I don't know if it's like really making me grow as a human. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know either there. This is the classic argument about kind of just reading too deeply into art as well. All the opinions, like as an artist, you have to let go of something and then let every person bounce their own personality off your art and whatever that your art is to them is what it is to them. And you'll never be in control of that because hum humans are insane, right? Because <laughs> that's the way it goes. Yeah, that's the way it goes. And for some for some reason, this just popped in my head. You know the the, the band The Gorillas? Mm -hmm. They had a song called Dare. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was a great song. So I watched this thing. I can't remember what it was. It was just a video on uh, kind of the making of that album. And there was just this one-off thing that they said, which is the guy that came in to to rap on that song when he came into the booth they said we just want you to freestyle what you're going to rap and just feel out this beat and see what you think and the intro to the song is it's coming up it's coming up it's coming up it's there and that was him telling them to turn the volume up Right. So he could hear the beat. And it became the and whole then he, hook he of the said, song. It's there, like right. leave the volume. And that's the intro to the song. It and that, this like, song is the song. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was his accent that says it's there, but it's what? comes out as it's there. Uh, I gotta see this. It's super interesting. Right. And then you think, oh, it's about this, it's about this, it's this, it's that. And it's just this it's it's like an ad lib line or <laughs> I was even watching this or uh, having a conversation the other day about uh, Stanley Kubrick. I think it was Kubrick anyway. Uh, he did what is now known, I think, as retroscripting, which you let an original script kind of be the what steers the actor. And then you have a bunch of ad-libbing. You let the characters find their own dialogue. 
And then whatever becomes of the edit, like whatever they, they choose all the dialogue that they say, they make the movie and then they, they essentially like retro script. They change the script oh. that gets released with like to the Academy right. yeah, yeah. to fit the movie. And I, I don't mark my words that that's Kubrick or that's exactly that. But I do think that is also hilarious that you can only plan so much. And then there's all these intangibles and stuff, but what I know is worth commenting on it with someone like Christopher Nolan is something that I've learned to admire specifically in color grading, right? When I was doing uh, color for Stocksy. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. Have a Stocksy, You did a lot of color for uh, Stocksy. Yeah, we, yeah. we have a Stocksy kind of overlap as well. But when I was doing video color grading, but the, the challenge that becomes the challenge of color grading is continuity. It's can you create a tone or a palette that, that transcends over a bunch of clips and then you start to see that you have this admiration of continuity. Like, wow, there's a band that has a bunch of albums and they weren't just a one hit wonder. They have two albums that are good, then three albums that are good, then four. And then when I, you see like a I Nolan. I never thought gor- Gorillas would last that long. Totally, right? <laughs> and then you see someone like Nolan and you really think there is something to comment on here because he clearly knows at least how to make art that he knows he's good at making. Mm-hmm. And then he makes it over and over and over and over again. And it's not like he's flawless, but it is of a high quality that separates itself from Hollywood almost individually. Well, my first note in all of this uh, on my page of notes was that uh, I just wanted to disclaim ahead of time that I'm not I'm not coming to this with those like special blow your mind insights of a a video essay. I'm just I just want to have a conversation about it because he's somebody that I spent quite a bit of time thinking about. And each time I see a new movie, I spend I feel like I go a little deeper into my appreciation for him. So I don't know. I just want to like stew in Nolan land for a little while and just kind of live in his world for a conversation. Quick question, just because we had, we had a little bit of conversation before this started, but I really don't know your relationship to Nolan films. Is there one particular film that for you jumped out? that you've watched multiple times or that you were like, holy. I've, I've watched a few of his multiple times, but l- let's go through them one by one. Cause like, no, there isn't a I one. I only want to know before we start, is there one or is there two? No, no, okay. no. If I have things no, to say about each yeah. one, but no, I, I just want to exclaim that I, I love a lot of his movies for all different reasons. But I remember when I left interstellar, I remember thinking, or maybe I tweeted this. I can't remember, but I remember thinking that it was the greatest piece of art humans had ever made. <laughs> yeah. And I was so blown away because I saw it not in IMAX. Oh no, I saw it in IMAX and I was just floored by it. Yeah. I, like I yeah, went yeah. with a friend who's an engineer, super nerdy guy. And both of us were just crying at what they had pulled off. Well, we and then like, you and oh I hung out right after we went for coffee and we're like, holy shit, this movie. <laughs> and so that was part of, this is part of extending that conversation too. And yeah, I want to save it for talking about Interstellar yeah, a bit, but I mean, I, yeah. I had somewhat of that feeling too. That and that was incredibly surprising to me how it wasn't widely loved. That was so strange afterwards. Anyway, we'll, let's get to Interstellar. We'll get there let's eventually. Kind of start from the beginning. If we're going to start from the beginning, yeah, then we're going to start with a movie that moves backwards. So, what does that mean? Should we start at from the end and move backwards? If it's going to be Memento, which is the well, backwards I, film, I have notes going back to the one film I haven't seen. So let's actually start. Like at the the, yeah, yeah. the beginning, according to what he did, but uh, following was his first film, uh, which I didn't know anything about for watching the director series. I still haven't watched it. I should probably get around to it, but I don't know. I don't really care that much. <laughs> but uh, it was, you know, his like indie 
beginning of everything. Uh, apparently made it for $6,000. It was all shot on black and white, 16 millimeter. And it has the beginning of this like non structure or non-conventional story structure where things are told out of sequence. Mm -hmm. And that is part of the reveal. And there's more to it about that, but if we haven't seen it, then. Well, well, I I think it's worth noting, at least I think this is worth noting that a first feature because of its complexity, if it's made in black and white, it removes the color challenge, (laughs) which is a big one, which is a big one. If, especially if you're shooting on film, you have to color time everything and you have to do, you're choosing through this whole psychology instead of just, luminant psychology or value like how bright things are so you can have like spy versus spy where there's a white like dress person versus right. a black dress person it's like you can have that versus primary and secondary colors or tertiary colors all of the mystery of color you know so when you look at something like his first feature being following and then something like clerks you know also black and white right it kind of flattens that challenge and then you have only the main challenge, which should be the main challenge, which is story and structure and stuff, right? Yeah. And then I think that's one of the ways that you can you can simplify it. And then when you move up into something like studio filmmaking, and then you have a huge union set and all the moving parts, then you have competencies beyond your original grasp. Right. right? C- color is taken care of. It's a non. Yeah. It's a non problem. Somebody will handle it if you don't know how to. But yeah, I mean, for an independent like. It's a lot, it is much harder to shoot in color and then not have it be distracting if you do a bad job of it or like needing to match white balance of your lighting. Like, but yeah, I I mean, I don't have much more to say about it. So let's, let's really go into Memento, which my Memento experience was that it totally blew my mind. Like it really, really rocked my world. It was really significant when I saw it. And I, I know I watched, I finished it and I watched it again immediately. Like I'd rented, I'd rented the DVD? Yeah, it wasn't VHS. Did you watch it when it first came out? Which I guess is... On thousand. Yeah, like at home, not in... I didn't see in the theater, but... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I rented it and just instantly watched it again. I was like, that was was incredible. That was perfect. Then I just watched it again. And this... The the first theme that this brings out in in how I think people watch (laughs) Nolan movies wrong sometimes is that they, um, they look for the hook or the trick and then rate him based on how exciting the the trick was or like if mm. they fell for it or if they were surprised or and if if that's what you're measuring against i mean especially because this came out kind of shortly after the sixth sense right so maybe people were like watching this in like how is this next to m night Shyamalan? and um that is not at all the point i think of of nolan's like tricks like there are they're, they're definitely novel they're, they're interesting, but it is so not the point and not why I found the movie so compelling. Well, Memento to me stands out in a referenceable type of film where if I make, like, if you become more of a cinephile movie suggester, you know, so you're not just suggesting to people, oh, watch last year's Oscars Best Picture or whatever. You're actually saying, hey, there was this movie that came out in 2000 that is now 18 years old and it's worth your time. It's actually one of those ones that stands apart. It's like adaptation. Have you seen that? Oh yeah. So it's, I watched that twice too. It is functionally different of a narrative structure and everything that it's like, you won't actually, they're almost categories of one, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think the, the impressiveness of that, I believe how it went is that Jonathan Nolan came up with the idea 
Jonathan and Christopher wrote the script. Jonathan not, being his brother. Yeah, yeah, his brother who writes or co-writes most of the films with him. And then Jonathan had proposed that he re- would write a short story while Christopher Nolan was making the movie. And then he wrote this short story, and it's called M- Memento Mori, which I haven't read. Right. It's on Vanity Fair, I think. Wait, I just realized we have to disclaim there will be spoilers. <laughs> It, sure. Yeah. yeah before yeah, any yeah. come out, we will spoil all these movies. So I'm glad I remembered before it happened, but yeah, we're going to talk very openly about them. So spoiler alert. Exactly. And, and a lot of his movies have full structures, full arc structures and stuff that are hard to, to talk about the point of the movie without talking about it as a whole. So yes, yeah. there is going to be spoilers. All for sure. will be revealed. What I found interesting as well, while watching that director series, a about Memento, they don't actually comment on how Christopher Nolan got connected to Carrie Ann Moss or cast her, but Carrie Ann Moss had just come off of The Matrix mm-hmm. and that she brought, what is his name? I wouldn't know his name. The, you, you have IMDb over the, here, don't the, you? Yeah, one the, second, the bald guy. Yeah, the bad guy in both movies, the surprise bad guy. Oh, it's uh, Joe Pe- uh, Pantaloon. Joe Pesci. Nope. Joe Pantaloon? <laughs> Pantoliano? Okay. Panti, yeah. Sounds right. I am butchering that. So, <laughs> but a very but, good actor. It helps pad out the casting because Carrie Ann Moss is, is just coming off of The Matrix with, with old Joe and then brings him in. And both of them are, are amazing character actors in this. And that's it's a padded cast. It's Nolan's first studio film. It's a great script. And what what I also found funny, I don't know, have you ever seen um, Steven Soderbergh's keynote address called The State of Cinema? No. Very worth watching. To anyone listening to, check it out. If you are into films and you want a Steven Soderbergh-level opinion on all of Hollywood, it's about a 40-minute talk called The State of Cinema. And in it, he talks about how backwards Hollywood has felt at times because Memento was just getting through the cracks of being suggested as a movie, like, you know, to, to follow through with like, yeah, this director's okay. And, you know, maybe we should, you know, promote this movie or sell it or whatever. And Soderbergh was like, I'll check it out. And he went and watched it and it was Memento. And he's like, Mm -hmm. are you kidding? Like, how is this a question mark Mm -hmm. to Hollywood? And, he goes on to comment really the difference between films and cinema in that. And films, he would say, are more or less the Hollywood machine. And cinema is if you took any of the above the line people out. So if you took the producer, writer, or director off of the project, it would be a fundamentally different project. Mm. And films mm. wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. So Nolan seems to be more about making cinema than he is about making films, even though he is a blockbuster filmmaker. And he is like Hollywood's golden boy, but, or at least one of them, but Memento still stands apart as a referenceable movie that is entirely worth anyone's time just because it unconventionally teaches your brain to think in a different way. And that's one of the best things that like cinema can do. And Nolan from a writing end or a story end seems to have that not nailed because it's not like he does it perfect every time. That's what he seems to do really well. 
at the risk of sounding obvious, and I don't want to be af- afraid to say anything too obvious because those are sometimes the most interesting things, but what was most compelling to me at the time, and maybe still is, is that the the, the narrative structure was a perfect mirror of the experience of the primary character. The like protagonist, yeah. The, that, that is what makes this really still stand out as a singular movie, because like, you kind of can't repeat that again. Like, you can't give more characters that particular type of amnesia. And then, like, this, you can't, you can't do this again. It'll be a complete knockoff. But you would need to have that kind of condition to be able to tell a story in this sequence. And, and same thing, like, to have the sequence actually play a part of the story, it is so important for the character to have that condition because you experience it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, you are so much more directly tied in and also something that blew me away right right from the beginning is how guy pierce was in i think every single scene i don't know if it's a hundred percent but compared to most movies he wasn't not in scenes like there weren't external characters (laughs) doing things he was your whole perspective of this reality in this world you never had flashbacks with sammy jenkins yeah you know he's in he's there he's always present so that's interesting so also hell of an acting job but as a narrative, like this is one of the things that's just amazing about narrative is that the protagonist should serve as the audience proxy, you know, like you are them mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And for instance, if you took a, a conventional narrative structure, like a mist, uh, like a detective story and the protagonist is the detective it's a perfect narrative structure because the detective is literally going from place to place to place, asking people, what don't I know? And then those people tell him because, right. or okay. him or her, yeah. because he is detecting. Mm-hmm. So you are that audience member because you go from scene to scene and you don't know. And then you learn <laughs> as they learn. Yeah. Right. So it's actually funny when you, when you think of uh, Fincher, Fincher movies are largely like that where there's a detective or a mystery or some, some kind of unpacking. Right. But when you have something like this, that, that gets you even more into the experience, more like momentum, it's more, or memento is more about the disorientation of the experience, like that you actually are as confused and as lost, but you have the advantage of remembering everything as the movie goes on. So you see kind of the aggregate of it all. Right. But I'm most impressed to know that Memento is his first studio leap because that was his test of whether or not he could work with the studio behind him. And then going into the next, I suppose, is one of his less lesser known. If not, I, it kind of is his only unknown movie is right. Insomnia. It's You know what's really funny is I actually saw that in theaters. Really? Which is really weird. But, and, but just... I really kind of forgot it. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't very memorable. Yeah. But I don't want to totally abandon Memento yet. Just well, the last couple of things about it were that, first of all, I, I never would have thought it was a first film. Like, yeah. I, I, guess, I mean, I guess his following was a feature. I think it was long enough to be a feature, but mm-hmm. Memento was the first significant one. And like, you just can't tell. Like, it, it looks like it could have been made by a veteran and uh, it really does still hold up. So if you haven't watched it, Check it out. Never too late. Also, one other one is Letters from a Screenplay broke down the screenplay of Memento, and it's very good. Okay. And Um, what what is that, a video? It is, well, 
It is a video essay a video YouTube essay. channel. Yeah, we need more that of those. Is fantastic from a writing perspective. I believe it's letters from a screenplay. Okay, I'm taking show notes here. So, and he, Michael Tucker, who's the uh, YouTube the the channel's curator or creator, he has broken down the Dark Knight and also Memento from a writing perspective of why it's a writing achievement above anything because the structure is so mm. unconventional but so functional and it's worth watching that and unpacking that as well from an admiration perspective one little thing that i really like about some nolan movies it's not in all of them but th- this might be the strongest one is the way he teases you along to make you feel like you're getting a prize for being smart and the big moment for that is if you notice the transition from black to white or so for from black and white to color mm-hmm. when the Polaroid's shaking. If you spot that, which isn't that hard to, to identify, but it's subtle enough that you feel intelligent for, for watching it. You know, it's like, it's like a good crossword puzzle where you can solve it. It's not beyond your ability, but you feel the reward of discovery and of having accomplished it yourself as you get there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that moment of seeing the Polaroid and, you, and when, when I watched it, it like... So for anybody that didn't notice, a lot of the forward, all the forward moving structure of the movie is in black and white and the reverse is in color. And when the two meet, he's developing a Polaroid and it just fades up from black and white to color. And when I saw that, it didn't register when it first happened. And a few seconds later, I, like I, it hit me. I'm like, wow, how did that happen? And I had to go you know, rewatch it just to see like, did I, did I miss something? Like what, how, how was this possible that it... And it was it was just a very perfect moment that I think a lot of people spotted, but feels good when, it, when you see the intelligence. Th- what, what you just kind of said about the fact that even though, like, if you were to pull everyone that watched the movie and say, "Did you notice that that happened?" and let's imagine ninety percent plus noticed, imagine it was like everyone noticed. Mm-hmm. Everyone feels like they are being talked to individually because exactly, you feel yeah. smart yeah. for noticing. And this is a writing kind of structure as well, where you have to remember audiences want to work for their food. They, they want <laughs> yeah. to figure it out. And actually, there was a writing tip that I remember reading uh, from Chuck Polanuk, a Fight Club writer. Yep. He gave a writing, a nonfiction writing tip in a blog form. I can't remember. I think last year, the year before. And he said, stop using thought verbs when you're writing like novels. So what's a thought verb? Bob wants this. Bob hates this. Sally desires this. It's something that is in the thinking Mm -hmm. and like used as a verb, right? So for instance, what you instead want to do is you want to get to know Bob and what Bob likes, essentially by what Bob's life is like, and then want to be presented with what Bob is presented with, and that you right. fill it in. Yeah, Bob wants that. <laughs> right. And you can tell by just looking. So he said, if you're having a dinner party, you don't know the preference, even though everyone has agreed to the meal that you said you're going to serve, you don't know how each person will want to eat in what order, what they're going to eat. So he said, you serve the meal kind of in courses, but you serve it in pieces instead of putting in a blender and saying, well, it's just (laughs) going to end up like this anyway. Right. Yeah. 
drink, drink the blended version of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And the audience wants that and they want to feel special. Like you are the detective or that you are the person putting the pieces together. And it feels amazing, especially in that's actually why I think some intellectual movies like interstellar don't get universally loved is because Mm -hmm. It goes just above right. when people are like, ah, I put that all that together. And they're like, what the hell happened? And I bet Memento was exactly that as well for a huge amount of people. They were like, I don't know what I just watched. Right. And I think, I mean, I think Inception was his biggest success because he's, he's always trying to ride exactly on that line, which mm-hmm. is a very thin, delicate line. And he happened to walk it most precisely for Inception, where it feels very intellectual, but you can, most people can just grasp it without asking the friend sitting beside them. And that's, that's what he's always striving for. The general public sometimes thinks he does or doesn't hit it, but I always appreciate it because it makes me feel smart. Yeah. So I don't know. Can we move on to Insomnia now? I, uh, uh, that's like, all I, I had. I haven't seen Insomnia. So, well, okay. I mean, I, I don't have a lot to say, but like I said, I honestly just forgot it. And also at this point, I didn't know Christopher Nolan. Like it, I didn't look up the director of Memento when it came out. I just kind of watched it and enjoyed it. And I don't think I knew who Christopher Nolan was until you and Inse- everyone. Well, like Inception basically. No, you yeah. didn't know through the Batman, like Batman Begins trilogy? N- not not after the first one because it was just it was still like a one off. It was yeah, like yeah. oh a a good superhero movie, yeah. and it's not like he had a lot to go back to. Like you couldn't just get into the director. And I guess there was the prestige in between the two, which I like saw Batman. late. I didn't see when it came out, and and that was also the moment. So I think when I realized Inception was the same director as Prestige. Oh, well, this movie I haven't seen. Then I had to go back watch the prestige. And I'm like, Oh, now I realize that Christopher Nolan's a director. I like one thing that happened to me that confused me. What was the other magic movie that came out mm. at the same time as the prestige? The illusionist. That's right. I know. Yeah. I, I remember I getting totally slightly confused them, yeah. in terms of tastes and like styles and stuff, because it was kind of like ants and a bug's life, <laughs> yeah. you know, coming out. And or, you're like, or, wait, wait, Ma- what, 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 what studio made which one? What was the other one? Paul Blart, Mall Cop and Mall Cops or something. There's two <laughs> Mall Cop movies in one year. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, this happens enough, but I do actually, I, I wonder whether or not I knew, like was interested in Christopher Nolan before, I think it was probably the dark Knight, to be honest, mm-hmm. where it really sank in that this is a different person doing different things. Right. Because The Prestige, I remember seeing that the first time and is a great movie, but I have definitely liked it more in its rewatches. I've, I've gained more admiration of how complex and, and beautiful of a movie it is in its rewatches. But Batman Begins definitely is where this kind of epic level of filmmaking starts. Mm-hmm. Like, because Insomnia, I think, um, like in the director series video, it goes through more complicated, like he does a director's commentary that they talk about. And it, it goes through more complicated sequencing, like technocranes and cranes and shot sequences and things that are much more logistically champ, uh, challenging. And there is a flavor of filmmaking that Christopher Nolan and Wally Pfister started collaborating on. Wally Pfister being his DP for, I think, Eight, six, seven movies. I don't know. Up until the last one, I think, uh, to do Interstellar. Up until Interstellar, right, which is with Hoyt, Hoyt, Hoyt Van Hoyt, 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 Hoy
it, it starts on, yeah, that, that shooting on 70 mil or mm. IMAX or doing some IMAX shooting and then these huge sequences and stuff like that. So. The most interesting thing I have on my list of interesting things to say about Insomnia came from the director series. I didn't know this, but is that he did not use any shot lists, storyboards, or monitors while he was shooting it. That blows my mind because, and this was his first studio film. So his whole career really is riding on this. Mm -hmm. Like we kind of forgot about it, but it did well. It was, but it turned out. So fortunately, Christopher Nolan stayed around. Mm -hmm. We we saw more movies from him, but he, he could have totally blown it and not having a shot list. Like, or, I don't, I don't get it. Or monitoring the shots because yeah. he was just watch, he would just watch the performances in real life. So anybody not familiar with filmmaking, this is how it happens. Like a shot list is that it's pretty simple. You just write down like, here's what we're going to do today. A shot list. Like it's, it'd be very hard to make it, especially a technical film or something that is complex without at least a shot list because the shot list goes into storyboards, goes into blocking pre-decisions. So really understanding how and why people are going to move around. And in that director series video, he does say that Nolan depended on the actor's competencies for blocking and staging. Right. Yeah. So they're all like he had Robin Williams and uh, Al, Pacino. Al Pacino and others who is, Where'd your oh, IMDb was, go? You had it right there. I know. I'm trying not to just be looking at my phone the whole time. But you'll sound so much smarter if you uh, just throw them out there. Uh, um, I won't tell anybody you're reading them. I almost can't believe when I forget actors like this. Uh, Hilary Swank is in it as no. well. I'm never just, surprised when I forget actors. So yeah, <laughs> There's a lot of them. But that is mind-blowing. And to to kind of – it implies his competence and trust in the process and the collaboration process, it implies that he is a person that figures things out and, you know, would get to, to set and they would figure out how a scene should work. You know, it's funny cause it's actually how I kind of shoot things now, like for YouTube, for example, yeah. is, is with actually, usually I'll either have a script or a shot list, but not both. And sometimes neither. But um, the idea of making a feature like that just seems like it would come out like a YouTube video, like that it'd look like a vlog in the end because to, to make it really feel cohesive, like that's an incredible feel. Well, what kind of blows me away is I would have, I would have assumed the opposite given the path he was about to take. There just is no way that the remainder of his movies. <laughs> he couldn't have done this on Batman. You, you can't make them that way. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I'll remember to say this later. And I, I know that we meant to kind of go through movies one at a time, but no, it's no rules. I, <laughs> I was working years and years ago. One of my intros to this whole world, this filmmaking world. When I got out of photography school, I reached out to Vincent Laforé, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, photographer, New York Times photographer, you know, like uh, Sports Illustrated guy. And he was most well known, at least to the photo industry, by being the guy that made the first 5D Mark II video. And I worked with him just, you know, I did some behind the scenes videos and it was right when I came out of photography school. But I worked on this behind the scenes video for, it was something Vimeo was co-creating with Vincent. And it was in L.A., and I remember specifically there was a camera operator on that set who told me that he was a second unit camera op on the dark night. Mm -hmm. And he told me that that 
that the Dark Knight, the production of the Dark Knight had ruined movies for him because it was the most perfect production that he's ever worked on. And it was so tight and so flawless that it has put a sour taste in his <laughs> mouth for the entire industry. Yeah. How yeah. not tight things right. really are. Right. And I remember I, well, I, you know, of all the things that happened at that time, I don't know why that, that stuck to my brain, but I do remember thinking it's not delusional to imagine that productions can be very well-organized or not very stressful or not like everyone wants to shoot themselves because it's so stressful and it's all these problems. But when you see something like the dark Knight or you see these huge achievements in film, it does have to, everything I, I would imagine to do with the planning and all pre-production and storyboarding and, and shot lists and script supervisors and all this huge machine that works nicely, right. With a visionary director. So that's why in Insomnia, it's the most mind-blowing in that video. And they're like, yeah, he didn't do that. You're like, what? That's why I honestly wonder, am I learning what I think I'm learning from these video essays? What if he was just uh, so new that he didn't know you could use those things? What if you'd never heard of a storyboard or a monitor before? And then he no. got to the dark night and they're like, here you go. And he's like, wow, what this I, is great. What I imagine, if I could close my eyes and put myself on that set, I almost see him like Dr. Manhattan, just like <laughs> making things happen with yeah, his yeah. brain, you know? Yeah, there's, there was no <laughs> hammer involved. He was just yeah. mentally transmitting he's it just to flying watch and, the scene and... Yeah. and uh, all right, now we're at Batman Begins. This is the the first really, really big one. You know, it, that moment when director is handed his big bucket of money and offered the a chance to ruin his career. But mm -hmm. in, in this case, this he, is also Warner Brothers' most precious, almost most precious intellectual property, right? right? That they had been just kind of sitting on since mm -hmm. what, Joel Schumacher killed it uh, with what what, Batman, Batman Forever. Mm -hmm. Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin. Was the last oh one God. with the nipples. Oh, man, that movie. Let's not talk too much about that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Batman had, as I, for my childhood, Batman movies were great. Like, I was young enough to not even know how bad Batman and Robin was. I probably enjoyed it at the time. I I did like how fantast fantastical it was. It's interesting looking at, like, characters like Bane, for instance, in Schumacher's and, oh and The Dark Knight Rises. But I... I remember liking those movies when I was a kid. Yeah. I remember they were fantastical. Gotham was crazy. I, I, I vividly remember liking Burton's Batman more by a lot. Yeah, I, I, I felt that way too. There was uh, something special about it. Yeah, at, at the time, and looking back especially to uh, Batman and Batman Returns, the Batman theme done by um, Danny Elfman yeah. is like that and... John Williams Superman theme at that time were like my childhood. Right. I am yeah. a superhero. Like we had good themes in those days. Oh man. So good. Which by the way, just as a side note, there was a documentary I watched about uh, two months ago on scoring movies called score. Oh, a documentary, like a, a feature length, it's a feature length documentary about scoring feature films. So it's about like the history of film scores. Cool. Very cool. Lots of good stuff in there. I'm going to watch that. Um, I, I regret not to wait. Now I'm just going down this rat hole. L last part of it. Hans Zimmer played at Coachella that I was at last year and I didn't see it. And I really wish I had. I wonder what that would have been like. I know. I wonder what he did. Did he have like a lap? I picture him like a DJ at a laptop where he's just no. like. Doo -doo -doo -doo. <laughs> he plays guitar as well. Oh, okay. he, he played live. Know. He was know. in um, what's it, uh, the band video? Uh, the Buggles. Video oh. killed the radio star. No, I had no idea. Hans Zimmer that. was in that oh, band. He, he Well, he was a uh, piano player in that band. Oh, cool. 
Okay. Anyway, what, <laughs> what are we talking about here? Um, the, I mean, my first notes about Batman Begins is like this. This is the beginning of the. I feel like this is really the beginning of what our modern superhero movies are, are at right now. Of course, you know they had been there, but this is like what really kicked it off. Uh, it, it predates Iron Man by three years, mm-hmm. which, like, you know, it. I just I didn't realize they could be this good. Until, Nobody until saw it coming. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It was like. Uh, superhero movies are only popcorn. They are only fluffy, basically children's movies. Maybe if you're a nerd, you'll like it as an adult. But all of a sudden, it, it was shocking how good this movie was. And it wasn't good for a superhero movie. It was just a very good movie. Batman Begins is a pretty good movie. Rewatching it, it's it's good. Don't get me wrong. Also, it's, I haven't rewatched it, so. Yeah, okay. Rewatch. For, for yeah. a long time. Rewatch it because it doesn't hold up as a structurally, like, I don't want to say perfect film, but like The Dark Knight is kind of in its own category of the mm-hmm. three films. But one of the things that I find very strange just in retrospect is, I don't know, did you see Batman versus Superman? Yeah. I hate those movies. <laughs> like, yeah, they're pretty bad. I, but what's weird is that Christopher Nolan executive produced Man of Steel. And he wrote the story for Man of Steel. He didn't he wrote read, the story? He didn't write the That's screenplay. He right. He's credited for story. Yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah. And then he executive produces Batman v Superman. And those movies are, like, I got this bizarre feeling when I left Batman v Superman where I thought, this is this movie is after the Dark Knight trilogy. Like, how is that? <laughs> yeah, how possible? do we step? How do we take a step back? Yeah, and I'll tell you the main reason why I think is this is Chris Nolan's or Christopher Nolan's failing and his success at the same time, like monetarily, is that he made Batman into an idea more than a person and was willing oh. for Batman to exist not in a cinematic universe, in Batman's universe. He is the sole character in those trilogies, more or less. It is not meant to be an overlap set of movies. It's not meant to pad into other movies. So it kind of left the studio kind of blank with what to do with it afterwards. Right. Because Marvel did exactly the opposite. They built a cinematic universe, right? Mm -hmm. So those movies are better than the Marvel movies because they're meant to be standalones that are only about what they're about. Not like, Ooh, let's toss in some other stuff that leads into these other places. You know, what's funny that happened at this time is coincidence. I think coincidentally, the Batman video games were also suddenly amazing. This was like, it was right around Batman begins. I think just after which ones. Well, so Arkham city and then Arkham asylum, Mm. like the, the full reboot of Batman video games were totally independent IPs. They were not based on these films at all. Like they were in stylistically totally different yeah, tone like cartoons, and everything. And they were um, like on their own, amazing and just really, really solid. So that doesn't say anything about Christopher Nolan. It was just kind of a strange coincidence. One second though. Does it say something about Christopher Nolan? I don't know. Part of me feels like he might have written. That he was tied to it? I mean, it's, it's possible. Like they, I have IMDb. Let's, at my fingertips, let's find out. Right uh, now. I mean, the voice actor was Nolan North, who's a different person and has the same name. Okay, so no, I scrolled through this earlier and thought I saw something, but the Batman Begins video game 
is based on the movie written by Christopher Nolan. Oh, okay. But that's so, not what I'm Not written about, by. Right? And I was thinking, wait a minute, did oh, he okay, write yeah. other IP or like, right. did he help write these other ones? But no. Yeah, I don't even remember that game. But so I guess it must have been another year or so after hmm. that the, the good Batman games came out. Maybe just pure coincidence? Yeah, it? yeah. No, I think, I, yeah. I honestly kind of think it was. But anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so... Batman Begins is, yeah, I mean, it's his, his first chance to spend some serious money on on a very large budget. And he really, I'm going to start by saying the obvious stuff, starts to create a very real superhero that is grounded in a human. You know, the, the Bruce Wayne of these films is so unlike our older Bruce Wayne that was basically an infallible, like sort of a more James Bondy. Like James Bond never used to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And now... Batman now Batman created the new James Bond like mm-hmm. the Daniel Craig James Bond took on the Batman role of like the flawed human that can get hurt and needs to recover and all these things you know and just the realness of I guess real is kind of a weird measure to say this because mm-hmm. it's all not real really real <laughs> but um the fact that I think it's the League of Shadows right that he trains with right Bruce Wayne Maybe he goes to the Himalayas or, or something. Yeah, he escapes his life as Bruce Wayne, his riches, to find a purity of, of self or intention, and then trains more or less as like a samurai. Yeah. So when when you see Batman's like tactile fighting, like on the street, you always kind of scratch your head thinking, you know, it's 10 on one, like how badass could he be? But then when you know he's trained inside of this like special society and he's made, you know, yeah, as a non-comic book reader that only watched the films before, there was never a reason of why he's so good at this stuff without any powers. Yeah. He was only rich and he had a suit on, but somehow he could fight well. And you just, you, you let that happen. But all of a sudden, like, it's easy to forget how exciting that was to see like, oh, this is why he's badass. And now he's way more intensely badass because of it. Because there's like a, a, a backstory you can kind of believe. I think what makes the like Batman Begins so good is the fact that it leads into the Dark Knight. That those, I don't necessarily the tri- think the trilogy works as a trilogy as much as number one and number two work as a as a dual set of movies. And the, for unforeseen circumstances of Heath Ledger's death and things like that, that it couldn't be sewn all together. But one of the things that I want to comment on that I think separates him at least in the era of all digital is his film preservation mentality and his shoot on IMAX um, set of scale. Because you and I, if I remember specifically what we wanted to talk about after seeing Interstellar, I I think I remember you saying, why did it look so real? Like, what was it that made everything look like it was actually there? And it's not the black holes, it's not the space, but it was the fact that they were all mounted on the side of the ships. It was all real ship interiors. It all had a handheld or a lived-in feel, like when they're landing on the water planet, you know, they had the Dunkirk-style mounting on the sides of the the, the like plane that they're flying or the ship they're flying. And it really had a, it tends to have a cinematic flavor that is because of, Wally Fister and, well, at least in Batman Begins and the Batman or the Dark Knight trilogy, it's Wally Fister and Christopher Nolan collaboration. And it seems like Christopher Nolan, although he is a standalone amazing director, he has a fundamentally special skill that a lot of good directors do, 
which is picking the right collaborators because he also regularly collaborates with Hans Zimmer, which, you know, in some of the behind the scenes or the like little YouTube videos, like especially the interstellar one in the, it's like how that collaboration works. It's, it's, you know, the trust in between collaborators and you have someone like Wally Pfister who goes on to like get increasingly more competence in huge scale things and shooting on, like on film and on IMAX, which is a completely different workflow. But then it leads up to Wally Pfister becoming a director who directs um, Transcendence, which is a executive produced by Christopher Nolan. So Wally Pfister is clearly like he is another director. He is the director of photography clearly instead right. of another arm like mechanical arm of Christopher Nolan it is like a really deep collaborator like Hans Hans Zimmer he's he is writing Hans Zimmer's music for Christopher Nolan's film a little more credit for Hans Zimmer here too is we're in an era where all most big blockbuster movies have pretty forgettable scores and in this this was really brought to my attention by a video essay that like breaks down why the Marvel movies all sound the same but I mean I remember the first really memorable score for me was in, in Inception but according to the director series that we watched uh, he he was kind of referencing Batman Begins as the first like really significant one and that uh, apparently I'm forgetting how memorable it was at the time that's funny but yeah I mean it, it, Christopher Nolan is so good with music like and in not letting it stagnate and be what you expected and being predictable and forgettable and what everything else is and like some of the cliches like I, I could have saved this but like things like the big brass hits like the burn from what, the inception noise? yeah from inception Wah. that is everything now and it just seems it just seems like a cliche but that's how cliche started somebody does a good job and then already takes it yeah. but that was so striking when you first saw it. It was such an impactful, like, wow moment. And Nolan doesn't just, like, take that and make it his trademark that he's going to release every time. He just did it once, and now, and then he goes on to organs in uh, Interstellar. You know, well, something I, I, I don't, the, something I don't quite understand about this level of filmmaking is how, you know, at the end, the Inception doesn't entirely depend on that noise, for instance, but it kind of does you know in a way it almost feels like well i guess the question is how do you have so much confidence in it working out without maybe having the the score done first for instance and then sculpting the movie to match the score and the score is sculpted to match the movie which is more impressive i guess because it means the movie is standalone everything it needs to be and then the score complements it like i always found it unbelievable when i was watching I can't remember what the Star Wars, the original making of Star Wars trilogy documentary is. It's uh, I haven't watched it, so oh, it's unbelievable. It's like the original trilogy, maybe I want to say it's two a two hour documentary or even three two hour documentaries. But the most incredible thing is that A New Hope, the very last thing to be done was the score. So all of the sound design, everything was watched and, you know, their confidence built in like, yeah, it's getting better. Okay. It's going to be decent. It's, you know, it's all these things. And then George Lucas is credited as saying that of all the letdowns of all the things that went wrong, the score by John Williams was the only thing that surpassed his expectations of what it could be. Mm -hmm. But you almost wonder like, what did you think Darth (laughs) Vader's was like, what did you think was going to play? He was walking in, you know? Because if it's not the Imperial March, you're like, well, 
what was your plan? Right, right. You know, like until all of a sudden John Williams like sprinkles his magic on it. And it's like, whoa. But I wonder that about collaborations at this level. And in the score documentary, it it does talk about that, like in the John Williams section. But there's also an amazing Hans Zimmer section. And what I love is obviously that very high level trust that it's like, we are going to figure out what's right. That's what the confidence is. If it's not right, we'll both admit it and we will keep steering the ship until it's right. right. Well, and the, this is slightly out of order, but the anecdote from interstellar where all the notes that he was given were about character development. And it's about this kind of relationship between mother or father and daughter. And I think it was father and son at that time. Sure. In and, the video. Yeah. But I mean, Some you know, it's just like, whatever. it's just given like here, Parent this is roughly kid. what it's about. It is, doesn't know if it's sci-fi, doesn't know the genre, doesn't know anything else. And he just starts writing to that. And you know, that's really speaks to that trust exercise. Yeah. And then you wonder, like you see this in a lot of very good directors where every extension, every department head, for instance, like if you're going to have each of your movie departments, head of wardrobe or any artistic role, they are a fully competent artist. They are a person that curates that department and the collaboration with the director is just the director having the vision of where everyone needs to go. But when you have just something as high level as the Dark Knight trilogy pulled off, that does stand alone in all the superhero movies, like they, they, it does stand alone and those are special movies, but then they add up to things like inception is like everyone goes and sees inception and it's just like absolute mind blowing, you know? So it's adding up and adding up the, the usage of shooting on these IMAX cameras, developing scale at these levels, and then working in visual effects with the best visual effects houses and keeping that maintained vision of what these movies are supposed to be about, or if they get reduced down to an emotion in the audience member, that emotion is, is always good. It's like that, that intellectual, like, ah, I feel mm -hmm. smart because I figured it out, or I feel scared because or, it's scary. Or I don't or, feel stupid for watching a superhero movie. Yeah. A lot of people though, you know, with Interstellar, that was like the, the feedback is like, I feel stupid right. after watching yeah. that movie. Yeah. One of my notes here that I, I liked for thinking of it is that this was Liam Neeson's better performance as Qui-Gon Jinn. Basically, his, his chance to act properly in that exact same yeah. role. I'm just looking at my notes now and, and, and not trying to fit them in in any particular way. Oh, yeah. this According to that, that documentary, there was, and this contradicts you, so that's why I'm hesitant to say it, that there was no second unit shooting on Batman Begins, that Nolan mm. was directing the whole thing. Yeah. And I'm not bringing it up no, because yeah. you said well, it. I just found that to be a crazy fact. Let's imagine then. My story could be flawed because this was like over a decade ago mm. that that happened. I thought it was second unit. I can't remember. He was definitely a camera operator on, on The Dark Knight. And you're right because they only had one unit. And was it the fact? No, they didn't shoot exclusively on IMAX. So they weren't shooting single cam. Yeah, there's only a few IMAX ones there. But there is no second unit. Interesting. I don't know. Well, no, you know, so that's... Somebody fact check it. We're not going to. Um, no. Well, I'll fact I, check my memory. It turns I also out. had the uh, the... When we're talking about like the physicality of it, the scene that really stands out for me is when he rolls out of bed all beat up and drops and starts doing push-ups. That was that was just a moment that like really stuck with me about who this new Batman is. Yeah. He can get really, really beat up, but then he's really intense about training and self-improvement and like is a human that needs to can't to stop, won't stop. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. He is the hero that Gotham deserves. <laughs> 
there it's it's funny watching those just cinematic stuff between the Dark Knight and Batman Begins side by side of how different they are that I didn't remember. Like that Wayne Tower is a completely different building in both of them. The skylines are different. Mm -hmm. The structure of the city is like in Batman Begins, there's the Narrows, is that what they called it? There's like an island where the poor people live and that's where the, that just doesn't exist in the other movies. Like it's just all a different Gotham. Which is interesting. And they just pull it off. Yeah. And I never questioned it. But then as soon as I was watching, this is the direct series again, like so much credit to this, but seeing them right next to each other, you're like, oh, yeah, it's this crazy. is just intentionally different. They didn't even. Yeah, they were hoping like, to make it similar. Uh, Back to the Future. Have you ever seen Back to the Future <laughs> one and two? Yeah, yeah side yeah. by side. They they're, are these. They're exactly the same movie from two different perspectives. Yeah, right? well, yeah. Todd Vaziri, we looking at his tweets about those the other day. He's oh. always doing breakdowns of them. And if you don't, if you don't follow Todd on uh, Twitter, yeah, Todd Vaziri is a lead compositor at ILM and um, like a visual effects compositor. And uh, he finds just these nuggets in movies because obviously, you know, being a compositor at that high of a level in doing all the Star Wars movies and everything, you have to you have to find all those. But he points out things that it's like achievements of practical set builds. You know what I like is he keeps reaching back to Back to the Future a few times a year. Like I think he's watching this movie over and over. Have you seen Back to the Future? Yeah, a lot. It's just as long. Now let's keep talking about uh, Christopher Um, Nolan. Anyway, I think that was most of my notes, but it was a good movie. I, I should have rewatched it before this because I, uh, I I don't really remember the experience of it that well. But um, but it, another thing this reminds me of is um, one of the critiques of, of Nolan in general that, to be honest, I hadn't given a lot of thought of probably because I'm a male, is uh, his kind of poor representation of female characters, which I think is, I, I've just heard that as a criticism. And when I put myself into that, headspace and kind of go through the checklist like okay who were his female characters looking at batman begins it's a pretty good one of like yeah they were it was not strongly represented at all no um not i lot. don't even remember that woman's katie holmes's name in it she didn't do she didn't do much it, up until you know um, interstellar um murph was like pretty pretty strong as and, a character and hathaway yeah i think yeah. interstellar did, did better for it but Dun- some of these earlier movies is uh, only it, it, it got its you know uh pushback for being largely white male but it's based on kind of what real was events where yeah. it was only white men there but the prestige is a, a another example of like there could have been there's no good reason not to have a, a strong female character there is um in the prestige um scarlett johansson but rebecca hall mm-hmm. is she's um, a great actress just for she yeah, and you know, it's funny that you say this, the bias of what you, like how the world reflect, reflects off of you and being two males. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard when movies continually work for you and it's like, yeah, that was a great movie. Yeah, it was a great movie. And you don't, yeah, like, you don't pause to, you don't see what you don't see. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, uh, I also love James Cameron. Um, I've loved James Cameron using female protagonists and female like heroines. And, and I guess my measure, and, and I'm kind of guilty for not really caring, honestly, is a good protagonist or a good character is a good character mm-hmm. is a good character is yeah. a good character. Yeah, I mean, this, I, I like, this is why day, to then, me, you know, Mad Max or, you know, I think Alien as well, like why it's so interesting as a movie to to speak for female protagonists is because it's not the point no. it is not important that they were females 
it was a fantastic movie and you were drawn into the characters and that's like that's that's where we will be soon i think like that's the future of filmmaking you're not going to be worried about whether it's a, a guy or, or or i you know i also think uh uh star wars as well i think ray's pretty you know it, it it'll just be more and more like you're not spending your time concerned about the, the gender of the yeah characters. and when you when you voice it like that that you could look at someone like chris nolan's career and and not see a large female representation it's probably on, on the aggregate it's probably true yeah now that you say that i'm like there isn't i don't know that there's a, a female protagonist or a female lead like a central protagonist is there no no um they're all male protagonists well interesting noticing that type of thing yeah um, versus like, for instance, James Cameron, I, I have loved specifically his female heroine, uh, the, the Ripley, for instance, I love Ripley because she succeeds in spite of her situation, not because of her situation, not because she's a female or because she's special, like in she aliens, for, for instance, she has to go against everyone not trusting her, even though she's the only person who's the expert. And and you'd think it's like, I am this special person. Everyone's like, I'll follow you. She succeeds in spite of everyone disagreeing with that. And she keeps on being strong and she keeps on, you know, figuring those things out versus sometimes when a character is put into a convenient role of succeeding, you know, no matter what, that's like Pixar's role or Pixar's uh, one of their rules is, Convenience can get your protagonist into trouble, but it, or no, not convenience. Sorry, um, what's coincidence. The word? Coincidence can get them into trouble, but can't get them out of trouble. I love that idea. Yeah. Um, next movie. I just I just started hearing us say the title, and are we saying it weird? Prestige or prestige? I don't know. I just uh, <laughs> I just started being conscious of it after I said it three or four times. Prestige. Yeah, I think prestige, but I think we we're giving it a harder G. This is know. not important. I just became, but this is a thing you think about once you podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the the prestige. Um, so I had heard nothing about this movie before I saw it. Uh, like I again, I didn't know who Christopher Nolan was at this point. I didn't know that it was a common director shared by a few movies I'd really enjoyed. And I was about to find out. Um, and I also saw this movie late. I, I think, like many people, I confused it with The Illusionist. I didn't really know the difference of them. I thought it was just. Just another generic film, you know, and uh, it's not, it's pretty solid. I think I didn't rewatch it actually. So the last time I saw it would have been about five years ago. And as funny as this is, there is another video essay that I remember watching um, that is based on the prestige and goes in depth covering why it's so special. And it's a nerd writer video. Have you ever seen nerd? Yeah, nerd writer is great. I'm going to add it to the show. It's called um, Hidden in Plain Sight. And as to not cover the same things that are covered in it, it just talks like more or less about why and how those themes are interwoven into how the how it's edited, how it's presented. It's like it's the the fact that you know the whole structure is presented in the stages of magic, and that's how the movie is presented. You know, like it's kind of adaptation esque in that way where it's like you're watching a movie about a movie being written about a movie being acted about a movie yeah, happening. They, they, it's like, to, they told you what's going to happen and you just didn't believe them yeah, until it happened. Until and it happened. Back and, yeah. and um, that is kind of the, it, it is the, the preciousness of why magic or why, 
why that is uh, uh, desirable for us. And that same desirability about the ma- magic process, about what they're commenting in the movie is the movie itself. It does, it does it in a mirrored sense. And yeah, that nerd video is fantastic breaking that down, but you know, knowing also the admiration I have at least um, what sets Christopher Nolan apart at, I have to, I have to kind of know this. It's, it, it's all, it always comes down to writing at the end of the day, you can have, you can have these huge set pieces, these huge, you know, like, uh, like Michael Bay, um, massive scenes. Uh, what is it? Roland Emmerich set pieces, you know, like huge, massive things. And that doesn't make a good movie. And then you have something simple. That's good writing and a good story. And it's a good movie. And we all know the difference because we all go to transformers two or three. And <laughs> we're like, we all go, well, it makes a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? yeah. <laughs> Somebody but, goes. Um, but what's funny is it all reduces down to that. And, you know, Christopher Nolan's collaboration with his brother, Jonathan Nolan clearly has something They they are intellectually in tune to know what matters and to do things like structure a movie correctly, like memento for how it's structured. It succeeds because it's so highly nuanced Mm -hmm. and so structured, you know, in a nuanced way. And then something like, uh, the prestige, or prestige <laughs> is you got it, it. It also succeeds, you know, on those laurels and, uh, or I guess laurels is the wrong. Thing it's pronounced laurels. Laurels. Yes. But it's not succeeding on its laurels. It is uh, succeeding because it, it has, um, it's, it's, it's big things in the right places. Right. And not just succeeding on the cinematography or, or just the, the set design or just the wardrobe or just this, and then everyone gets to feed on a good script and a good visionary kind of goal of taking it to the right place. And I don't necessarily think that Christopher Nolan has not done that. Like he, he hasn't directed a movie that's missed that mark. I don't think, you know, like for instance, it, it, it shoots for some highly nuanced structure mm-hmm. and doesn't get it. Right. Um, that's one of the reasons why I guess he's a standalone director is because he's, it's not like he's batting a thousand, but close. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, he, he certainly hasn't, you can not love his films yeah. um, or you can, you can not like his style. I've, mm-hmm. I've heard legitimate criticisms of his overall approach to filmmaking and yeah. that's fine. You, you don't have to think it's all great, but um, if you are in tune with what he does, you would probably agree that he just hasn't screwed up yet. Like he hasn't done anything bad. Everything Everything's interesting at mm-hmm. the very least. Um, or there's been no miss or no flop. Yeah. I, I watched a DG, DGA, Directors Guild of America, conversation um, earlier this year that was with all the Best Picture nominees, I think, uh, for the Oscars. And it's like a three and a half hour conversation. And it's like Guillermo del Toro and Greta Gerwig and uh, you know Christopher Nolan. And Greta Gerwig, who just made her first movie this year, Lady Bird, written and directed her first movie, she had said that she um, has been taking notes as an actress and really, you know, figuring out how to direct. And she was sitting, she's sitting next to Christopher Nolan in this, I think anyway, maybe she's sitting next to Jordan Peele and then he's sitting next to Christopher Nolan. But um, she, I believe says that Christopher Nolan, that she read somewhere that Christopher Nolan never sits down on set. Mm -hmm. And she was like, she, she just kind of laughingly says, if you're going to model yourself on anyone, why not 
Christopher Nolan, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's hilarious because they're all the best pitcher nominees, except Christopher Nolan's definitely in a different he's further along the path, you know, in terms of a different uh a different career. And then Greta Gerwig just starting off is like, hey, I'm sitting here with one of the people that I'm trying to model model my career off of. Like, how do you direct? But uh one very interesting thing. I wanted to, I, it just popped into my mind actually that this is a, a tidbit I took away from that talk. Do you know in um, du, 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 Inception when they go off the mm, when they go off the bridge in the car and then they go in the water and then the water's filling up in the car? Yeah. Also in Dunkirk when the boat is filling up mm-hmm. and they're inside the boat. Yep. The way that they film. The actors inside of a, like a closed container when the water level is getting really high, you know, and they, their face is like an inch from the top of the, the roof. He comments on the fact that water is something on set that people for how dangerous water is, people don't take it very serious that it's dangerous. So there's all these practices about like, you know, don't get hurt, don't get hurt. But the way they do that is like the, the whole top of that car, for instance, is like a Tupperware container. So people can get as close to the top as possible. And if they want out, they just push it off and it's like, it just pops off the whole top of the car. Mm-hmm. And you know, cause then they can get really dangerously into it's that, still like, one, <laughs> that one, have that one panic of, moment of and, get out if they need and then get out of there. Right. And I thought that's so hilarious, right? It's like Velcroed all the way across just enough to keep it on quick release. Yeah. yeah. And that quick releases, they can get out if they want. Right. And it's stuff like that, that, that builds that severity, like where that actor would, legitimately mm-hmm. want to be as nervous as humanly possible in that situation, but still feel in control or like, you know, unset. Still actually be out. safe. Yeah. But <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Well, do you have any other notes about prestige? Cause I, I don't. Um, to be honest, that nerd writer video is amazing. Yeah. I and, mean, there's this thing of like, in some way we could just sit here and give you a list of video essays to watch. It, it, you know, so, it just so happens that Christopher Nolan does have a bunch of great video essays on it though. So like, yeah. I think it's worth noting those that video does go like go through a bunch of stuff. That's amazing. I know the prestige is cinematically uh, like a great experience, like the way that the sets come across, the way that they are artistically, like the art department is fantastic in that, in that movie. You you know, this represents something I love about Christopher Nolan is you don't need any deeper understanding of anything to be blown away and enjoy his movies. Like anybody can walk in, whether they are a, a, a veteran bitter film critic that has seen too many movies and uh, is sick of everything. You've seen it all before, or you can just be suburb family and it's going to still blow your hair back no matter who you are. Like he really has achieved the, the films for everyone in the the best modern way that, that I can think of what I I'd have to watch the prestige again and wonder this, but I feel like it's a lot more intimate of a movie in terms of camera placement and blocking it like that scope that I, that I'm talking about that Christopher Nolan and Wally Pfister are kind of, you know, set themselves apart with that huge, massive kind of, you know, dark night scope, interstellar scope, you know, inception, interstellar scope, interstellar scope. Um, <laughs> I don't think that that actually comes across in the prestige. I think that it's, it's much closer. It's much more intimate. I can't mm. think of too many shots well, or scenes that are, are big. You right. Know? Like are Mostly there any indoor. aerials? 
Yeah, probably not. I don't think so. But without having it right in front of me, I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm like, oh yeah, there's that. I should have rewatched all of this before we started talking, but it's a lot of movies. Yeah, right? yeah. I think it's appropriate for a Christopher Nolan episode to be epic and sprawling, so we'll pick up where we left off next episode and get to some of his biggest films. Yeah.